0: Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, just me today. So today we're bringing you an extra special bonus episode, Frasier and Canada. It's the latest in our Section 15 jurisprudence, which we've got up on the website. Go and check out the other Section 15 decisions. And in the meantime, enjoy this one. It's a good one. Frasier and Canada, appeal heard December 12, 2019. Judgment rendered October 16, 2020, on appeal from the Federal Court of Appeal. The judgment of Chief Justice Wagner and Justices Abella, Moldaver, Karakatsanis, Martin, and Crosier was delivered by Justice Abella. In 1970, the Royal Commission on the Status of Women in Canada set out a galvanic blueprint for redressing the legal, economic, social, and political barriers to full and fair participation faced by Canadian women for generations. Many of the inequities it identified have been spectacularly reversed, and the result has been enormous progressive change for women in this country. But despite the sweep of legislative initiatives and positive realignment of many social expectations, the long reach of entrenched assumptions about the role of women in family continues to leave its mark on what happens in the workplace. One of the ways it does so is how women are remunerated generally. The corollary is how they are remunerated when they seek to combine work with family responsibilities by working part-time. As the Royal Commission noted, quote, ways must be found to provide part-time employees with pay and working conditions no less equitable Than those provided for the full time worker. Fifty years later, this appeal raises that very issue. Members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police receive benefits upon retirement from a pension plan. Greater benefits are provided to members with a record of high pay and long, uninterrupted full time service. Certain gaps in a member's record of service, such as being suspended or time spent on unpaid leave, can be filled in through a buyback process leaving the members' pension benefits unaffected. No such choice is available to full-time members who temporarily reduce their working hours under a job-sharing agreement. Nearly all of the participants in the job-sharing program are women, and most of them reduced their hours of work because of childcare. Three retired members of the RCMP claim that the pension consequences of job-sharing have a discriminatory impact on women and violate Section 15.1 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Their claim failed at the federal court. The application judge concluded that job sharing is not disadvantageous when compared to unpaid leave, and even if it is, that any such disadvantage is the result of an individual employee's choice to job share, not her gender or family status. The federal court of appeal upheld the application judge's decision. I would allow the appeal. Full-time RCMP members who job-share must sacrifice pension benefits because of a temporary reduction in working hours. This arrangement has a disproportionate impact on women and perpetuates their historical disadvantage. It is a clear violation of their right to equality under Section 15.1 of the Charter. Background Ms. Fraser, Ms. Pilgrim, and Ms. Fox served as police officers in the RCMP for over 25 years. Ms. Frazier was posted to Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, where she worked rotating 10-hour shifts seven days a week. Ms. Pilgrim worked in the commercial crime unit in Quebec City. Ms. Fox began her policing work in Toronto before being transferred to a small community in central Newfoundland. Ms. Frazier, Ms. Pilgrim, and Ms. Fox took maternity leave in the early to mid-1990s. Upon returning to full-time service, they experienced difficulties combining their work obligations with caring for their children. Ms. Frazier described feeling overwhelmed as she tried to balance work and family. Ms. Pilgrim felt like she was on a treadmill, and Ms. Fox described the experience as hell on earth. These difficulties caused Ms. Fox to retire from the RCMP in 1994 and resulted in Miss Frazier taking unpaid leave in 1997. At the time, the RCMP did not permit regular members to work part-time. In December 1997, the RCMP introduced a job-sharing program to provide members with an alternative to taking leave without pay. Under the job-sharing program, two or three RCMP members could split the duties and responsibilities of one full-time position, which allowed each participant to work fewer hours than a full-time employee. Parties to a job-sharing agreement could be asked, on one month's notice, to resume full-time work based on administrative or operational needs. Job-sharing was meant to be mutually beneficial for the RCMP and participating members. Participants were able to remain operationally connected to the force while having a work schedule that better accommodated their individual circumstances. The RCMP benefited from the participants' services which helped, among other things, in addressing staff shortages in smaller communities and in emergency situations. Ms. Frazier, Ms. Fox, and Ms. Pilgrim enrolled in the job-sharing program along with 137 other RCMP members between 1997 and 2011. Most participants were women with children. From 2010 until 2014, all RCMP members who job-shared were women. And most of them cited child care as their reason for joining the program. After enrolling in the job sharing program, Ms. Frazier, Ms. Fox, and Ms. Pilgrim became aware that their participation would have consequences for their pensions. Understanding those consequences requires a brief review of the RCMP's pension plan. All RCMP members engaged to work at least 12 hours a week must enroll and contribute to a statutory pension plan. Upon retirement, Members receive benefits based on, among other things, their years of service. One year of work counts as one year of pensionable service. More years of pensionable service lead to higher pension benefits. Years of full-time work and part-time work are treated differently when pension benefits are calculated. Part-time work is prorated to reflect the lower number of hours worked. It is therefore less valuable than full-time work in the formula used to calculate pension benefits. RCMP members acquire full-time pension credit for periods of service in which they were engaged to work 40 hours a week. Members can also treat certain gaps in full-time service, such as leave without pay, as fully pensionable. Upon returning from unpaid leave, a member can buy back the service they missed by making the contributions that both she and the RCMP would have made had she been actively employed. This increases the members' years of full-time pensionable service, which results in a more valuable pension. Ms. Fraser, Ms. Fox, and Ms. Pilgrim expected that job sharing, like leave without pay, would be eligible for full pension credit. Both situations, they noted, involve a temporary interruption in regular service for full-time members, a decrease to between 12 and less than 40 hours of work a week when job sharing into zero hours a week when on unpaid leave. It was logical in their view that members in both situations would be allowed to buy back their lost service and associated pension benefits. The RCMP initially accepted this position in communications with Ms. Pilgrim. Subsequently, however, the RCMP took the position that job sharing was part-time work for which participants could not receive full-time pension credit. When informed that they would not be able to purchase full-time pension credit for their job-sharing service, participants in the program raised concerns with senior management. In a memo to the RCMP commissioner, 14 female members from across Canada explained why they considered the pension consequences of job sharing to be illogical and unfair. Quote, Members returning to full-time work from maternity leave, leave without pay, self-funded leave without pay, and disciplinary actions are given the opportunity to buy back their pension benefits. Members returning to work from extended periods of off-duty sick and disciplinary actions maintain their pension benefits despite not working. Members who have departed the force and are subsequently re-engaged are able to buy back their pension. Thus, it would seem logical that members returning to full-time work from job share arrangements would be entitled to the same opportunity to purchase pension benefits. Job sharing is a progressive, proactive, and innovative step for the RCMP. It is time to support members who choose to job share, rather than penalizing them for choosing an option the force has made available. It is important for management to remember that it is not only the member who benefits from job-sharing, but also the RCMP. Job-sharing allows the force to retain its investment in human resources, members with training, skill, and seniority. It provides a pool of trained people who can be called in on emergency situations. Members who job-share stay current with changing technology, legislation, and training, among other things because they are still working. Why is the RCMP penalizing those who choose to job share when it stands to benefit from the arrangement?" End quote. The RCMP's then assistant commissioner, G.J. Luebki, responded to the memo and acknowledged that there may be an element of unfairness to the RCMP's approach. He presented the matter to the RCMP Pension Advisory Committee which retained an actuary to provide advice on available options. The actuary acknowledged that the RCMP's pension plan could be amended under the Income Tax Act and income tax regulations to extend pension buyback rights to participants in the job-sharing program. The actuary noted that the flexibility under the income tax regulations is particularly useful in responding to employee requests for reduced work hours at various stages of their family, life, or career. While this process was ongoing, three female RCMP members filed internal grievances, challenging the denial of the requests to buy back full-time pension credit for their job-sharing service. The RCMP External Review Committee found in their favour. The committee saw no legal barriers to the RCMP's defining job-sharing as a combination of hours worked and a period of leave without pay. The committee cited a similar Treasury Board policy about the working hours of certain public service employees on the verge of retirement. Quote, there was a precedent for such categorization. In 1999, the Treasury Board instituted a program of pre-retirement transition leave by introducing the pre-retirement transition leave policy. This policy allowed certain public service employees close to retirement to reduce their hours of work by up to 40%. Their pay was reduced accordingly, but the hours not worked were treated as LWOP with respect to pay, deductions, allowances, other leave, benefits, and pensions." The RCMP's acting commissioner, William Sweeney, did not follow the External Review Committee's recommendations and dismissed the grievances. In his view, it was not legally possible for job sharing to be defined as a combination of full-time work and leave without pay. Although immensely sympathetic to the grievances, he concluded that the classification of job sharing as part-time work was not discriminatory. After the commissioner's decision, Ms. Frazier, Ms. Fox, and Ms. Pilgrim started this charter application. They advanced two submissions. First, they argued that the pension plan, properly interpreted, allows participants in the job sharing program to acquire full pension credit. Second, if this was not possible, they argued that the pension plan violates Section fifteen one of the Charter because it prevents women with children, the majority of participants in the job-sharing program, from contributing to their pensions in the same way as members who work full-time or take leave without pay. In support of their application, Ms. Fraser, Ms. Fox, and Ms. Pilgrim filed expert evidence and other material addressing the disadvantages women with children face in the labor force. The application judge found that job-sharing is part-time work for which participants cannot obtain full-time pension credit. This outcome, in her view, did not violate Section 15.1 because there was insufficient evidence that job-sharing was disadvantageous compared to unpaid leave. Even assuming that there were negative consequences to job-sharing, these outcomes were the result of a participant's choice to job-share. The charter application was therefore dismissed. An appeal to the Federal Court of Appeal was unsuccessful. The court held that job sharing RCMP members did not receive inferior compensation to members on leave without pay, and that any adverse impact on job sharing participants flowed from their choice to work part time, not from the pension plan. For the reasons that follow, I would allow the appeal. Analysis Unlike full time members who work regular hours, who are suspended, or who take unpaid leave, Full-time RCMP members who job share are classified as part-time workers under the regulations and cannot, under the terms of the pension plan, obtain full-time pension credit for their service. Ms. Fraser and her colleagues submit that this limitation violates Section 15 of the Charter on the basis of sex and, alternatively, on the basis of family parental status. Section 15 of the Charter states, Every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to the equal protection and equal benefit of the law, without discrimination, and, in particular, without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, colour, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. Section 15 reflects a profound commitment to promote equality and prevent discrimination against disadvantaged groups. To prove a prima facie violation of section 151, a claimant must demonstrate that the impugned law or state action on its face or in its impact creates a distinction based on an enumerated or analogous ground and imposes burdens or denies a benefit in a manner that has the effect of reinforcing, perpetuating or exacerbating disadvantage. Ms. Frazier does not suggest that the negative pension consequences of job sharing are explicitly based on sex, rather she claims that they have an adverse impact on women with children. How adverse impact or systemic discrimination is applied has received extensive academic consideration. As Professor Colleen Shepard notes, Why is it so critical to expand in our understanding of adverse effect discrimination if we do not there is a significant risk that discrimination embedded in apparently neutral institutional policies, rules, or procedures will not be recognized as discriminatory. This risk is accentuated by the necessity in anti-discrimination law to connect the experience of exclusion, harm, prejudice, or disadvantage to a recognized ground of discrimination. We need a sophisticated and coherent theory of adverse effect discrimination to assist claimants, lawyers, and adjudicators with the complexities of the manifestations of systemic discrimination. It is helpful to start by defining the concept. Adverse impact discrimination occurs when a seemingly neutral law has a disproportionate impact on members of groups protected on the basis of an enumerated or analogous ground. Instead of explicitly signaling out those who are in the protected groups for differential treatment, the law indirectly places them at a disadvantage. Increased awareness of adverse impact discrimination has been a central trend in the development of discrimination law, marking a shift away from a fault-based conception of discrimination towards an effects-based model, which critically examines systems, structures, and their impact on disadvantaged groups. Accompanying this shift was the recognition that discrimination is frequently a product of continuing to do things the way they have always been done and that governments must be particularly vigilant about the effects of their own policies on members of disadvantaged groups. Griggs and Duke Power Company was one of the first cases to apply this concept and is a classic example of adverse impact discrimination. An employer required employees to have a high school diploma and pass standardized tests to work in certain departments at a power plant. Neither requirement was significantly related to successful job performance. Both, however, had the effect of disqualifying African Americans at a substantially higher rate than white applicants. The United States Supreme Court held that the education and testing requirements infringed Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The court emphasized that the act prohibits practices that are fair in form but discriminatory in operation. Quote, Congress has now provided that tests or criteria for employment or promotion may not provide a quality of opportunity merely in the sense of the fabled offer of milk to the stork and the fox. On the contrary, Congress has now required that the posture and condition of the job seeker be taken into account. It has to resort again to the fable ...provided that the vessel in which the milk is proffered be one all seekers can use. The Act proscribes not only overt discrimination but also practices that are fair in form but discriminatory in operation. Good intent or abuse of discriminatory intent does not redeem employment procedures or testing mechanisms... ...that operate as built-in headwinds for minority groups that are unrelated to measuring job capacity." Griggs explains that the application of neutral rules may not produce equality in substance for disadvantaged groups. Membership in such groups often brings with it a unique constellation of physical, economic, and social barriers. Laws which distribute benefits or burdens without accounting for those differences, without accounting for the posture and condition of the job seeker, as in Griggs, are the prime targets of indirect discrimination claims. I agree with Professors Lisa Phillips and Margot Young that, quote, We are not always conscious of the ways in which the distinctions we draw will implicate group identities and single out specific groups for distinctive treatment. This is because the constellations of factors or characteristics that go into the construction of identities often masquerade as unconnected, purely individual traits, behaviors, choices or situations. Yet. In social reality, they may be tightly linked to one group or another. So the law has had to recognize that state action may be discriminatory, even though on its face and in terms of the intentions informing it, there is no obvious evidence that such discrimination is occurring." Quote. Addressing adverse impact discrimination can be among the most powerful legal measures available to disadvantaged groups in society to assert their claims to justice. Not only is such discrimination much more prevalent than the cruder brand of openly direct discrimination, it often poses a greater threat to the equality aspirations of disadvantaged groups. Quote, even more common are situations where the discrimination occurs in a context like an employment relationship, government program or statute, or educational setting, and there is no single identifiable villain, no single action identifiable as discriminatory and the outward appearance of a neutral set of rules or practices being applied across the board. This invisible structure with its accompanying set of practices is a powerful limit on the equality aspirations of many who must deal within that structure but have characteristics that do not match those of the persons intended to benefit from the structure." By recognizing the exclusionary impact of such discrimination courts can better address discrimination in its diverse forms, including at the systemic or institutional level. Remedying adverse effects discrimination allows courts, quote, to go to the heart of the equality question, to the goal of transformation, to an examination of the way institutions and relations must be changed in order to make them available, accessible, meaningful, and rewarding for the many diverse groups of which our society is composed, end quote. This court first dealt with adverse impact discrimination in Ontario Human Rights Commission and Simpson Sears. Employees at a department store were periodically required to work on Friday evenings and Saturdays. Teresa O'Malley, an employee of the store and a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, was required by her faith to observe the Sabbath from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. She brought a complaint against the store under the Ontario Human Rights Code claiming that the rule requiring her to work on Saturdays discriminated against her on the basis of religion. Writing for a unanimous court, Justice McIntyre agreed. He stressed that the Ontario Human Rights Code was meant to provide protection against the result or the effect of discriminatory conduct. Citing Griggs and several Canadian decisions, Justice McIntyre concluded that the act prohibited adverse effects discrimination which he distinguished from direct discrimination as follows. A distinction must be made between what I would describe as direct discrimination and the concept already referred to as adverse discrimination in connection with employment. Direct discrimination occurs in this connection where an employer adopts a practice or rule which on its face discriminates on a prohibited ground. For example, no Catholics or no women or no blacks employed here. There is, of course, no disagreement in the case at Bar that direct discrimination of that nature would contravene the act. On the other hand, there is the concept of adverse effect discrimination. It arises where an employer, for genuine business reasons, adopts a rule or standard which, on its face, neutral, and which apply equally to all employees, but which has a discriminatory effect upon a prohibited ground, on one employee or a group of employees in that it imposes, because of some special characteristic of the employee or group, obligations, penalties, or restrictive conditions not imposed on other members of the workforce, end quote. Simpson-Sears was the first of several human rights decisions where this court grappled with adverse effects discrimination. In Canadian National Railway Corporation and Canada Canadian Human Rights Commission, or Action Travail, Chief Justice Dixon upheld a discrimination claim against an employer whose hiring and promotion practices led to women being drastically underrepresented in certain jobs. Some of these practices were neutral on their face. Chief Justice Dixon, however, highlighted the importance of looking at the result of a system. Quote, a thorough study of systemic discrimination in Canada is to be found in the Abella report on equality in employment. Discrimination means practices or attitudes that have, whether by design or impact, the effect of limiting an individual or a group's right to the opportunities generally available because of attributed rather than actual characteristics. It is not a question of whether this discrimination is motivated by an intentional desire to obstruct someone's potential, or whether it is the accidental byproduct of innocently motivated practices or systems. If the barrier is affecting certain groups in a disproportionately negative way, it is a signal that the practices that lead to this adverse impact may be discriminatory. This is why it is important to look at the result of a system." These principles were soon imported into the court's Section 15 jurisprudence. In Andrews and Law Society of British Columbia, the court rejected a sameness or formal theory of equality, Instead, identifying substantive equality as the philosophical premise of Section 15 and outlining a theory of equality centered on the impact of the law on the individual or the group concerned. In developing this theory, Justice McIntyre emphatically rejected the approach to Section 15 adopted by the British Columbia Court of Appeal, which had defined the essential meaning of equality as ensuring that similarly situated be similarly treated. Justice McIntyre described this approach as seriously deficient on the basis that mere equality of application to similarly situated groups or individuals does not afford a realistic test for a violation of equality rights. Drawing on the court's human rights jurisprudence, while recognizing that not all distinctions and differentiations created by law are discriminatory, Justice McIntyre endorsed an approach to equality and discrimination ...that was centered on the actual effects rather than the purpose or facial neutrality of a law on a claimant or group. Quote, I would say then that discrimination may be described as a distinction, whether intentional or not, ...but based on grounds relating to personal characteristics of the individual or group, ...which has the effect of imposing burdens, obligations, or disadvantages on such individual or group not imposed on others... Or which withholds or limits access to opportunities, benefits, and advantages available to other members of society. Andrews provided a robust template for substantive equality that subsequent decisions enriched but never abandoned. It was a remedy for exclusion and a recipe for inclusion. Our subsequent decisions left no doubt that substantive equality is the animating norm of the Section 15 framework and that substantive equality requires attention to the full context of the claimant's group situation, to the actual impact of the law on that situation, and to the persistent systemic disadvantages that have operated to limit the opportunities available to that group's members. The court applying these principles has acknowledged the existence of adverse impact discrimination under Section 15.1. In Eldridge and British Columbia AG, the court recognized that there is a disparate impact on persons with hearing loss in a healthcare system in which they are unable to access interpreters. The court confirmed that a Section 15.1 violation could arise through the adverse effects of rules of general application. Similarly, in Vriand and Alberta, the court declared unconstitutional an Alberta human rights statute which did not include sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination because of its disproportionate impact on members of the LGBTQ community. Quote, There is on the surface a measure of formal equality. Gay or lesbian individuals have the same access as heterosexual individuals to the protection of the act in the sense that they could complain to the commission about an incident of discrimination on the basis of any of the grounds currently included. However, the exclusion of the ground of sexual orientation considered in the context of the social reality of discrimination against gays and lesbians, clearly has a disproportionate impact on them as opposed to heterosexuals. Therefore, the act in its underinclusive state denies substantive equality to the former group." Quote. Several other decisions of this court have confirmed that not only does the Charter protect from direct or intentional discrimination, it also protects from adverse impact discrimination. The court most recently addressed this issue in Tapetat. While concluding that there was no discrimination demonstrated on the facts of the case, the court acknowledged that facially neutral qualifications, like education requirements, can be a breach of Section 15 because of their disproportionate effect on protected groups. There is no doubt, therefore. That adverse impact discrimination violates the norm of substantive equality which underpins this Court's equality jurisprudence. At the heart of substantive equality is the recognition that identical or facially neutral treatment may frequently produce serious inequality. This is precisely what happens when neutral laws ignore the true characteristics of a group which act as headwinds to the enjoyment of society's benefits. The animating norm of the current Section 15 framework guaranteeing substantive equality is also the core value engaged in cases of adverse effects discrimination. This court has never suggested that cases of adverse impact discrimination should be resolved under a different approach. On the contrary, we have clarified that the same approach applies regardless of whether the discrimination alleged is direct or indirect. Whitler leaves little doubt as to this point. Quote, the substantive equality analysis under Section 151, as discussed earlier, proceeds in two stages. The role of comparison at the first step is to establish a distinction. In some cases, identifying the distinction will be relatively straightforward, because a law will, on its face, make a distinction on the basis of an enumerated or analogous ground, direct discrimination. In other cases, establishing the distinction will be more difficult, because what is alleged is indirect discrimination, that although the law purports to treat everyone the same, it has a disproportionately negative impact on a group or individual that can be identified by factors relating to enumerated or analogous grounds. In that kind of case, the claimant will have more work to do at the first step. Historical or sociological disadvantage may assist in demonstrating that the law imposes a burden or denies a benefit to the claimant that is not imposed on or denied to others. The focus will be on the effect of the law and the situation of the claimant group, quote. In the human rights context, the court has not used different legal tests for direct and indirect discrimination. A unified approach, in my view, is equally justified under the Charter. To prove discrimination under Section 151, claimants must show that a law or policy created a distinction based on a protected ground, and that the law perpetuates, reinforces, or exacerbates disadvantage. These requirements do not require revision in adverse effects cases. What is needed, however, is a clear account of how to identify adverse effects discrimination, because the impugned law will not, on its face, include any distinctions based on prohibited grounds. Any such distinctions must be discerned by examining the impact of the law. This inquiry has frequently been described as a search for a disproportionate impact on members of protected groups. In other words, in order for a law to create a distinction based on prohibited grounds through its effects, it must have a disproportionate impact on members of a protected group. If so, the first stage of the Section 15 test will be met. How does this work in practice? Instead of asking whether a law explicitly targets a protected group for differential treatment, a court must explore whether it does so indirectly through its impact on members of that group. A law, for example, may include seemingly neutral rules, restrictions, or criteria that operate in practice as built-in headwinds for members of protected groups. The testing requirement in Griggs is the paradigmatic example. Other examples include the aerobic fitness requirement in Mayoren, and the policy requiring employees to work on Saturdays in Simpson Sears. To assess the adverse impact of these policies, courts looked beyond the facially neutral criteria on which they were based and examined whether they had the effect of placing members of protected groups at a disadvantage. In other cases, the problem is not headwinds built into a law, but the absence of accommodation for members of protected groups. Eldridge is a good example. Under the healthcare scheme in that case, all patients lacked access to sign language interpreters. But this lack of access had a disproportionate impact on those who had hearing loss and required interpreters to meaningfully communicate with healthcare providers. Disproportionate impact can be proven in different ways. In Eldridge, it was established because the quality of care received by those with hearing loss was inferior to that available to hearing persons. In Griggs and Mayoren, by contrast, the relevant impact was the higher rate at which African Americans and women were disqualified from employment. Both are examples of how a law or policy can have a disproportionate impact on members of a protected group. Griggs, Mayoren and other leading cases leave no doubt that disproportionate impact can be established if members of protected groups are denied benefits or forced to take on burdens more frequently than others. A difference in quality of treatment as in Eldridge, may strengthen a claim of disproportionate impact, but it is not a necessary element. Two types of evidence will be especially helpful in proving that a law has a disproportionate impact on members of a protected group. The first is evidence about the situation of the claimant group. The second is evidence about the results of the law. Courts will benefit from evidence about the physical, social, cultural, or other barriers which provide the full context of the claimant group's situation. This evidence may come from the claimant, from expert witnesses, or through judicial notice. The goal of such evidence is to show that membership in the claimant group is associated with certain characteristics that have disadvantaged members of the group, such as an inability to work on Saturdays or lower aerobic capacity. These links may reveal that seemingly neutral policies are designed well for some and not for others. When evaluating evidence about the group, courts should be mindful of the fact that issues which predominantly affect certain populations may be underdocumented. These claimants may have to rely more heavily on their own evidence or evidence from other members of their group, rather than on government reports, academic studies, or expert testimony. Courts will also benefit from evidence about the outcomes that the impugned law or policy, or a substantially similar one, has produced in practice. Evidence about the results of a system may provide concrete proof that members of protected groups are being disproportionately impacted. This evidence may include statistics, especially if the pool of people adversely affected by a criterion or standard includes both members of a protected group and members of a more advantaged group. There is no universal measure for what level of statistical disparity is necessary to demonstrate that there is a disproportionate impact, and the court should not, in my view, craft rigid rules on this issue. The goal of statistical evidence ultimately is to establish a disparate pattern of exclusion or harm that is statistically significant and not simply the result of chance. The weight given to statistics will depend on, among other things, their quality and methodology. Ideally, claims of adverse effects discrimination should be supported by evidence about the circumstances of the claimant group and about the results produced by the challenged law. Evidence about the claimant group's situation, on its own, may amount to merely a web of instinct if too far removed from the situation in the actual workplace, community, or institution subject to the discrimination claim. Evidence of statistical disparity on its own may have significant shortcomings that leave open the possibility of unreliable results. The weaknesses with each type of evidence can be overcome if they are both present. Professor Colleen Shepard recognizes this possibility. Quote, While in some cases, the overwhelming correspondence between certain categories and the gender or racial composition of the category makes the sex or race discrimination claims relatively easy to substantiate, in other cases, the statistical preponderance may be less marked. In such cases, it may also be important to consider the qualitative components of the harm that constitutes discrimination. End quote. That is not to say, of course, that both kinds of evidence are always required. In some cases, evidence about a group will show such a strong association with certain traits, such as pregnancy with gender, that the disproportionate impact on members of that group will be apparent and immediate. Similarly, clear and consistent statistical disparities can show a disproportionate impact on members of protected groups even if the precise reason for that impact is unknown. Professor Sandra Friedman has argued forcefully against requiring claimants to specify the reason why they are being disadvantaged by a rule or policy. Quote, to require the complainants to show the reason why the policy criteria or practice disadvantages the group as a whole is to fundamentally misunderstand the meaning of indirect discrimination. It is the disparate impact on the group of a policy criteria or practice itself which constitutes the prima facie discrimination, End quote. I agree. If there are clear and consistent statistical disparities in how a law affects a claimant's group, I see no reason for requiring the claimant to bear the additional burden of explaining why the law has such an effect. In such cases... The statistical evidence is itself a compelling sign that the law has not been structured in a way that takes into account the protected group's circumstances. The United Kingdom Supreme Court reached a similar conclusion in ESOP and Home Office, UK Border Agency. At issue was a core skills assessment that immigration officers had to pass to be promoted. Racial minorities and older candidates were shown to be less likely to pass the assessment but there was no evidence available to explain why the disparity was occurring. The Supreme Court concluded that there was disparate impact. Lady Hale explained that a certain claimant does not need to establish the reason for the particular disadvantage to which the group is put. She noted that such a requirement made it more difficult to combat hidden barriers which are not easy to anticipate or spot. She also recognized that it is commonplace for the disparate impact or particular disadvantage to be established on the basis of statistical evidence, which would be impossible if claimants had to offer an explanation for why any given statistical imbalances had occurred. ESOP confirmed a flexible approach to proving disparate impact under which proof of statistical disparity and broader group disadvantage may each be sufficient to establish a claim, but are not rigid requirements. The European Court of Human Rights has similarly held that when it comes to assessing the impact of a measure or practice on an individual or group, statistics which appear on critical examination to be reliable and significant will be sufficient to constitute the prima facie evidence the applicant is required to produce. However, this does not mean that indirect discrimination cannot be proved without statistical evidence. I agree with this approach. Both evidence of statistical disparity and of broader group disadvantage may demonstrate disproportionate impact, but neither is mandatory, and their significance will vary depending on the case. Some further observations. First, whether the legislature intended to create a disparate impact is irrelevant. Proof of discriminatory intent has never been required to establish a claim under Section 15.1. Nor is an ameliorative purpose sufficient to shield legislation from 151. Second, if claimants successfully demonstrate that a law has a disproportionate impact on members of a protected group, they need not independently prove that the protected characteristic caused the disproportionate impact. Put differently, there was no need for the claimant in Griggs to address whether his exclusion was based on his race or lack of a high school education. The whole point of the adverse impact analysis was to show that the use of a high school education as a criteria for employment had a disproportionate impact on African Americans. It is also unnecessary to inquire into whether the law itself was responsible for creating the background social or physical barriers, which made a particular rule, requirement, or criterion disadvantageous for the claimant group. Returning to Griggs. This would amount to asking whether Duke Power Company was responsible for lower rates of high school education among African Americans. Plainly it was not, but this was entirely irrelevant to whether a disproportionate impact has been established. Section 151 has always required attention to the systemic disadvantages affecting members of protected groups, even if the state did not create them. Third. Claimants need not show that the criteria, characteristics, or other factors used in the impugned law affect all members of a protected group in the same way. This court has long held that the fact that discrimination is only partial does not convert it into non-discrimination. In Brooks, the court held that a corporate plan which denied benefits to employees during pregnancy discriminated on the basis of sex The employee argued that the plan did not deny benefits to women, but only to women who are pregnant. Writing for the court, Chief Justice Dixon explained that practices amounting to partial discrimination are no less discriminatory than those in which all members of a protected group are affected. The court reiterated this principle in Janssen and Platy Enterprises Limited, where it held that the sexual harassment of two female employees was discrimination on the basis of sex. The court rejected the employer's argument that sex discrimination had not occurred because only some of the female employees at the store had been sexually harassed. Chief Justice Dixon reiterated the approach to partial discrimination he had previously set out in Brooks. Quote, if a finding of discrimination required that every individual in the affected group be treated identically, legislative protection against discrimination would be of little to no value. It is rare that a discriminatory action is so bluntly expressed as to treat all members of the relevant group identically. In nearly every instance of discrimination, the discriminatory action is composed of various ingredients with the result that some members of the pertinent group are not adversely affected, at least in a direct sense, by the discriminatory action. To deny a finding of discrimination in the circumstances of this appeal, is to deny the existence of discrimination in any situation where discriminatory practices are less than perfectly inclusive. It is to argue, for example, that an employer who will only hire a woman if she has twice the qualifications required of a man is not guilty of sex discrimination if, despite this policy, the employer nevertheless manages to hire some women." The court's approach in Brooks and Jansen had obvious implications for claims based on multiple grounds of discrimination. As Diane Pothier explains, quote, it is an easy step to move from saying, as in Jansen, that not all women need to be affected to constitute sex discrimination, to also accepting that different groups of women can be differently affected or have different experiences of sex discrimination. Jansen also meant that a claim based on, for example, both gender and race could not be defeated simply by saying that it could not be sex discrimination because white women were unaffected, or that it could not be race discrimination because black men were unaffected, end quote. The court subsequently confirmed that heterogeneity within a claimant group does not defeat a claim of discrimination. In Quebec and A, for example, the court held that certain provisions of the Civil Code of Quebec that distinguished between de facto and legally married spouses, for the purposes of support and division, discriminated on the basis of marital status. It reached this conclusion even though there was a range of need and vulnerability among de facto spouses. Similarly, in Nova Scotia Workers' Comp Board and Martin, the court held that a provincial compensation scheme that provided lesser benefits to those suffering from chronic pain discriminated on the basis of disability. The court confirmed that differential treatment can occur on the basis of an enumerated ground despite the fact that not all persons belonging to the relevant group are equally mistreated. This brings us to the second step of the Section 15 test, whether the law has the effect of reinforcing, perpetuating, or exacerbating disadvantage. This inquiry will usually proceed similarly in cases of disparate impact and explicit discrimination. There is no rigid template of factors relevant to this inquiry. The goal is to examine the impact of the harm caused to the affected group. The harm may include economic exclusion or disadvantage, social exclusion, psychological harms, physical harms, or political exclusion, and must be viewed in light of any systemic or historical disadvantages faced by the claimant group. The purpose of the inquiry is to keep Section 15 focused on the protection of groups that have experienced exclusionary disadvantage based on group characteristics, as well as the protection of those who are members of more than one socially disadvantaged group in society. As the court noted in Quebec and A when discussing the second stage of the Section 15 test, quote, the root of Section 15 "...is our awareness that certain groups have been historically discriminated against, and that the perpetuation of such discrimination should be curtailed." End quote. Notably, the presence of social prejudices or stereotyping are not necessary factors in the Section 151 inquiry. They may assist in showing that a law has negative effects on a particular group, but they are neither separate elements of the Andrews test nor categories into which a claim of discrimination must fit. Since, quote, we must be careful not to treat Kapp and Whitler as establishing an additional requirement on Section 15 claimants to prove that a distinction will perpetuate prejudicial or stereotypical attitudes towards them. Such an approach improperly focuses attention on whether a discriminatory attitude exists, not a discriminatory impact, contrary to Andrews, Kapp, and Whitler. end quote. The perpetuation of disadvantage moreover, does not become less serious under Section 151, simply because it was relevant to a legitimate state objective. I agree with Dean Mayo Morin that adding relevance to the Section 151 test, even as one contextual factor among others, risks reducing the inquiry to a search for a quote "rational basis for the impugned law. The test for a prima facie breach of section 15(1) is concerned with the discriminatory impact of legislation on disadvantaged groups, not with whether the distinction is justified, an inquiry properly left to section 1. Similarly, there is no burden on a claimant to prove that the distinction is arbitrary to prove a prima facie breach of section 15(1). It is for the government to demonstrate that the law is not arbitrary in its justifactory submissions under Section 1. In sum, then, the first stage of the Section 15 test is about establishing that the law imposes differential treatment based on protected grounds, either explicitly or through adverse impact. At the second stage, the court asks whether it has the effect of reinforcing, perpetuating, or exacerbating disadvantage. Where possible, the two inquiries should be kept distinct, but there is clearly potential for overlap in adverse effects cases based on the impossibility of rigid categorizations. What matters in the end is that a court asks and answers the necessary questions relevant to the Section 15 inquiry, not whether it keeps the two steps of the inquiry in two impermeable silos. Application Returning to the claim before us in this appeal, as previously noted, full-time RCMP members who work regular hours, who are suspended, or who go on unpaid leave can obtain full pension credit for those periods of service under the pension plan. Full-time members who temporarily reduce their hours under a job-sharing agreement, however, are classified as part-time workers under the regulations and are unable to acquire full-time pension credit for their service. Under the pension scheme, therefore, a full-time RCMP member's temporary reduction in working hours results in their losing out on potential pension benefits. The question is whether this arrangement has a disproportionate impact on women. The federal court and Court of Appeal acknowledged that the vast majority of members in the job-sharing program who lose out on pension benefits are women with children. In their view, however, these losses occurred because the appellants elected to job share, not because of their gender or parental status. In relying on Ms. Frazier's, quote, choice to job share as grounds for dismissing her claim, the Federal Court of Appeal, with respect, misapprehended our Section 15 jurisprudence. This court has consistently held That differential treatment can be discriminatory, even if it is based on choices made by the affected individual or group. In Brooks, for example, Chief Justice Dixon rejected an employer's argument that providing unequal benefits to pregnant women is not sex discrimination because pregnancy is voluntary. After Brooks, the court repeatedly rejected arguments that choice protects a distinction from a finding of discrimination. In Lavoie in Canada, for example, the court held that a statute which gave preferential treatment to Canadian citizens infringed Section 15(1), despite the government's argument that becoming a Canadian citizen was a choice. Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Leray Dubé, concurring on this issue, made clear that quote, the fact that a person could avoid discrimination by modifying his or her behavior does not negate the discriminatory effect. If it were otherwise, an employer who denied women employment in his factory on the ground that he did not wish to establish female changing facilities could contend that the real cause of the discriminatory effect is the women's choice not to use the men's changing facilities. The very act of forcing some people to make such a choice violates human dignity and is therefore inherently discriminatory. The law of discrimination thus far has not required applicants to demonstrate that they could not have avoided the discriminatory effect in order to establish a denial of equality under Section 15.1. The court in Andrews was not deterred by such considerations. On the contrary, Justice LaFerre specifically noted that acquiring Canadian citizenship could, in some cases, entail the serious hardship of losing an existing citizenship. He left no doubt that this hardship was a cost to be considered in favor of the individual affected by the discrimination. End quote. Justice Leray Dubay had expressed a similar view in her dissenting reasons in Nova Scotia AG and Walsh, a decision the court overturned in Quebec and A, explaining that a choice based approach was fundamentally flawed. Quote, in Walsh, the majority's focus on choice rather than on the impact of the distinction on members of the group also paid insufficient attention to the requirement for a true substantive equality analysis, affirmed in Kapp and Whitler. In contrast to formal equality, which assumes an autonomous, self-interested, and self-determined individual, substantive equality looks not only at the choices that are available to the individual, but at the social and economic environments in which they play out. End quote. Several scholars have made this point as well. Professor Margot Young, for example, points out that quote, the closure of critical examination by way of characterization of the inequality of which an individual complains as natural, chosen, or merited is deeply problematic. Indeed, many of the major steps in the progression towards women's equality have come precisely from the revelation of the natural as social, the chosen as coerced, and the merited as undeserved. Claims of merit, nature, and choice are difficult to critically unpack. They so often are the roots of discrimination. This makes these notions deeply functional in the perpetuation and obfuscation of inequality." End quote. Professor Sonia Lawrence makes the critical point that choices are themselves shaped by systemic inequality. Quote, a contextual account of choice produces a sadly impoverished narrative in which choices more theoretical than real serve to eliminate the possibility of a finding of discrimination. The result is a jurisprudence which almost mocks a more nuanced version of the what and how of discrimination through frequent recourse to the idea that any harm to the claimant was actually the result of her choice or her unwise exercise of her own judicially-protected liberty. Any number of structural conditions push people towards their choices, with the result that certain choices may be made more often by people with particular personal characteristics. This is a key feature of systemic inequality. It develops not out of direct statutory discrimination, but rather out of the operation of institutions which may seem neutral at first glance." End quote. The case before us highlights the flaws of overemphasizing choice in the Section 15 inquiry. For many women, the decision to work on a part-time basis, far from being an unencumbered choice, often lies beyond the individual's effective control. Deciding to work part-time for many women is a choice between either staying above or below the poverty line. The job-sharing program, moreover, was introduced precisely because some members required access to an alternative to taking leave without pay due to their personal or family circumstances. Ms. Fox made a similar point in her affidavit. Quote, In my experience, this policy is particularly harmful to women who work in rural or isolated communities. The RCMP regularly posts women members in such communities where there is simply no around-the-clock childcare available. As such, job sharing is often the only childcare solution for members with children. By invoking the choice to job share as a basis for rejecting the Section 151 claim, the federal court and Court of Appeal removed the challenged inequality from scrutiny, effectively taking it off the radar screen so as to circumvent examination of the equality issues at stake. It is an approach that this Court's Section 15 jurisprudence issues. The federal court and Court of Appeal also held that the pension plan does not treat those who job share less favorably than those who go on unpaid leave. They reached this conclusion based on a formalistic comparison between the remuneration offered under job sharing and leave without pay. This is precisely the type of mirror-comparator group analysis that this court squarely rejected in Whitler. Section fifteen one guarantees Ms. Fraser and others in the job-sharing program the right to substantive equality with respect to full-time RCMP workers, not merely members on leave without pay. A narrow focus on the buyback provisions ignores their role within the pension scheme. They are themselves the means by which those who go on unpaid leave get meaningful access to the pension benefits available to all full-time employees this aspect of miss fraser's claim is indistinguishable from central in that case quebec delayed implementation of a pay equity program by up to 4 years for women employed in workplaces with male comparators and 6 years for women employed in workplaces with no male comparators this court held that the implementation delay infringed section 15.1 rather than comparing the situation of women in different workplaces The court explained how the delay in implementing pay equity disadvantaged women relative to men in other workplaces, earning full value for their work. Quote, The legislature chose to act to address pay discrimination against women, but denied access by delaying it for a group of women, leaving them, in comparison to male workers, paid less for longer. Whatever the motives behind the decision, This is discrimination reinforced by law, which this court has denounced since Andrews. The fact, then, that women in one type of workplace with male comparators received a remedy promptly is not an answer to the question of whether women in another type of workplace were also disadvantaged. It is no defense to a claim of discrimination by one group of women to suggest that another group had its particular discrimination addressed. This leaves the question of whether, under a proper assessment, the Section 15 claim should succeed. In my respectful view, the use of an RCMP member's temporary reduction in working hours as a basis to impose less favorable pension consequences, plainly, has a disproportionate impact on women. The relevant evidence, the results of the system, showed that RCMP members who worked reduced hours in the job-sharing program were predominantly women with young children. From 2010 to 2014, 100% of members working reduced hours through job-sharing were women, and most of them cited childcare as the reason for doing so. These statistics were bolstered by compelling evidence about the disadvantages women face as a group in balancing professional and domestic work. Evidence submitted by Ms. Frazier indicated that women have historically borne the overwhelming share of childcare responsibilities, that part-time workers in Canada are disproportionately women, and that they are far more likely than men to work part-time due to childcare responsibilities. As a result, they experience less stable employment in periods of scaling back at work, including within police services. This evidence finds firm support in commission reports, judicial decisions, and academic work. The landmark report of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women in Canada acknowledged that a larger proportion of women worked only part-time and warned that the inequitable treatment of part-time workers would disadvantage women. Quote, we recognize one major problem in the use of part-time workers. "...the provision of fringe benefits for those not employed on a regular basis. We nevertheless believe that ways must be found to provide these employees with pay and working conditions no less equitable than those provided for of the full-time worker." Quote. In its report, the Commission of Inquiry into Part-Time Work confirmed that most employees in part-time, lower-paid positions were women. The Commission also studied the use of job-sharing programs across Canada. The data it collected suggested that almost all job-sharing participants were women and that the arrival of a new baby was the most common primary reason for initiating job-sharing. The report of the Commission on Equality in Employment expanded on the link between part-time work and childcare, observing that, quote, The demand and the need for remedial measures derive from the increasing number of mothers in the workforce. Their children need adequate care. By Canadian law, both parents have a duty to care for their children. But by custom, this responsibility has consistently fallen to the mother. It is the mother, therefore, who bears any guilt or social disapprobation for joining the workforce and it is the mother who normally bears the psychological and actual responsibility for making childcare arrangements. From the point of view of mothers, access to child care and the nature of such care limits employment options. In balancing the responsibilities of family and career, women more frequently than men must make decisions, such as to withdraw from the labor force to care for young children, of consequence to their career. Various studies show that a major reason women are overrepresented in part-time work is that they are combining childcare responsibilities with jobs in the paid labor market, End quote. The final report of the Law Commission of Ontario's 2012 study on vulnerable workers also confirmed that, quote, Canadian studies show that women are more likely to be engaged in precarious work than men. For example, women are overrepresented in part-time and temporary work. The high numbers of women in precarious work are in some measure the result of their traditional social role as caregivers. Under the gender contract that typified the 1950s middle class, men were primarily responsible for financial support and women stayed home to care for the family. Women in many working-class families have always worked outside the home, caring for other women's children, cleaning homes, and working in factories and shops, for example. Today, under current social and economic conditions, two incomes are often necessary to support a family, and women's choices and involvement in many spheres of life have expanded. The majority of women have joined the workforce. The family unit is also more varied with increasing numbers of single parents. And yet women continue to bear primary responsibility for caregiving. In 2010, Canadian women spent an average total of 50 hours per week caring for household children. Double that spent by men at 24 hours. In 2008, just over 9% of women reported working part-time because of child care responsibilities, as to less than 1% of men. As a result, the precarity of women's jobs is partly influenced by public policy on maternity benefits and child care." End quote. Judgments of this court have also recognized that women face disadvantages in the workplace because of their largely singular responsibility for domestic work. The court has acknowledged the sacrifices women make at work for the sake of domestic considerations, and that women bear a disproportionate share of the childcare burden in Canada. Recognizing the reality of gender divisions in domestic labor and their impact on women's work lives is neither new nor disputable. Elizabeth Shilton has eloquently described the link between the division of unpaid care work and women's overrepresentation in part-time work. Quote, in 21st century Canada, the male breadwinner family has largely vanished along with the idea of the family wage. Women are almost as likely as men to belong to the paid workforce. Two constants remain, however, employers continue to demand an unencumbered worker along with the right to organize work without regards to workers' care obligations. And gender roles within families have been slow to change. Care work still needs to be done, and women still bear most of the practical responsibility for doing it. In consequence, women are forced to manage family care without impinging on their work obligations. Their strategies, euphemistically labeled choices, often include part-time and precarious forms of work that typically come with lower wages fewer benefits, fewer promotional opportunities, and minimal or no retirement pensions. The impact on women's economic welfare is compounded by stereotypical assumptions that women do not merit or want more responsible, higher-paying jobs because they will inevitably prioritize family over work. The unequal burden of family care creates and reinforces women's continuing inequality both inside and outside the workplace." Courts, by identifying adverse impact discrimination, have been particularly effective in dealing with criteria which specifically disadvantage women with childcare responsibilities. The European Court of Justice, for example, has held that providing workers with less favorable benefits based on their working hours can amount to adverse impact discrimination against women. All of these sources and more show the clear association between gender and fewer or less stable working hours. They provide powerful support for Ms. Fraser's core argument that the RCMP's use of a temporary reduction in working hours as a basis for imposing less favorable pension consequences has an adverse impact on women. The first part of the Section 151 test has therefore been met. This leads me to the second part of the Section 151 inquiry whether this adverse impact reinforces, exacerbates, or perpetuates disadvantage. There is no doubt that it does. I agree with Ms. Fraser that the negative pension consequences of job sharing perpetuate a long-standing source of disadvantage to women. Gender biases within pension plans, which have historically been designed for middle- and upper-income, full-time employees with long service, typically male. The National Action Committee on the Status of Women expressed concerns about gender biases within pension plans in a brief to the House of Commons Subcommittee on Equality Rights, presented in June 1985 by Louise DeLude and Carol Wallace. In the brief, the NAC described how pension plans treat women unequally. Quote, The differences in impact of pensions on women and men are well known and amply documented. They are the results of the combined effects of the elements which make up the multi-layered cake that is Canada's pension system today. Women are more affected by these inadequacies than men because they have a higher rate of turnover and drop out of the labour force more often than their male counterparts. As a result, the small proportion of female earners who are members of employer pension plans are exceedingly unlikely to ever collect decent pensions from that source. In fact, experts have said that many women who participate in employer-sponsored pension plans would probably have been better off putting their contributions to them in a bank." End quote. Others have echoed these concerns. Elizabeth Shilton notes that although progress has been made in securing equal pension coverage for women, the level of benefits they derive from those pensions remains unequal. She links the gender biases in pension plans to their preference for male pattern employment. Quote, from the beginning, pension plans were calibrated to the career trajectories of skilled workers whose training and experience were particularly valuable to their employers. The reward structures embedded in those plans, therefore, favored permanent, full-time workers with long service and relatively high pay, what has been called male pattern employment. Long after explicitly gendered pension plan rules were made illegal, Typical benefit structures still forced lower-paid, temporary, or part-time employees, those in typical female pattern employment, to subsidize the benefits of workers with more market power. This is true of all pension plans, although the way in which the gender dynamic works depends on the type of plan." End quote. The International Labour Organization has also commented on how increased periods of part-time work result in lower pension benefits for women. Quote, through their life cycles, women accumulate disadvantages that pile up in older ages. Double or triple discrimination is often amplified as women advance in age. Women are especially vulnerable owing to their high numbers in unpaid, low-paid, part-time, frequently interrupted, or informal economy work. As a result, they are less often entitled to any contributory pension benefits in their own right. Even if they are, their pensions are often significantly lower than those of men due to lower earnings and shorter contribution periods." The structural inequality within pension plans has tangible impacts for women upon retirement. This court has described the feminization of poverty as an entrenched social phenomenon in Canada. Claire Young has linked this problem to disparities in pension policies. When one examines statistics on income security in retirement, women are disproportionately worse off financially than men, with 7.6% of women having incomes below the low income cutoff, which is colloquially called the poverty line, compared to 3.6% of elderly men. Over 72% of those aged 65 or older living below the poverty line are women. It is also important to note that single elderly women are the poorest of the poor in Canada, with 80% of unattached women over the age of 65 living in poverty, end quote. Pension design choices have in some, far-reaching, normative, political, and tangible economic implications for women. Because the RCMP's design perpetuates a long-standing source of economic disadvantage for women, the second stage of the Section 15 test is satisfied and there is a prima facie breach of Section 15 based on the enumerated ground of sex. In light of the conclusion that there is a prima facie breach of Section 15 based on sex, it is unnecessary to decide whether Ms. Frazier's alternative argument that this court recognized parental or family status as an analogous ground should succeed. Some observations may be helpful, however, for future cases. The Attorney General was prepared to accept that the narrower ground of parental status should be recognized as an analogous ground under Section 15 but only for these proceedings. I am uncomfortable with this court accepting a new analogous ground as a one-off. It is either a sustainable legal principle that this court should accept, or it is not. It should not get a trial run, subject to periodic review. Moreover, where it is protected in human rights statutes in Canada, parental status is part of family status, not a distinct category. I would be reluctant to sever them without submissions on what the implications are. In my respectful view, this is not the right case to resolve whether family parental status should be recognized as an analogous ground under Section 15(1). Not only is recognizing a new analogous ground unnecessary to fully and fairly resolve Ms. Fraser's discrimination claim, a robust intersectional analysis of gender and parenting, as this case shows, can be carried out under the enumerated ground of sex by acknowledging that the uneven division of childcare responsibilities is one of the persistent systemic disadvantages that have operated to limit the opportunities available to women in Canadian society. Human rights cases in other jurisdictions confirm that claims of parental discrimination can be brought as claims of adverse impact discrimination on the basis of sex. There is another more compelling basis for not definitively resolving the issue in this appeal. The record and submissions before us do not provide the necessary assistance in exploring the implications of such a step. There are several complex questions about recognizing family or parental status as an analogous ground that have not been addressed at any stage of these proceedings. There was only a brief discussion of family parental status in Ms. Fraser's factum. The issue was largely unaddressed in the submissions of the AG, almost all of the interveners and during oral argument, and it was completely absent in the reasons of the federal court and the Court of Appeal. The parties recognize that family status is the protected ground in most provincial human rights statutes, and that while there is no separate express protection for parental status, family status has been defined or interpreted to include protection for parents. The question of what constitutes a prima facie case of family status discrimination has been the source of considerable uncertainty and controversy in the human rights arena. But there were almost no submissions before us about whether or how the unsettled state of human rights jurisprudence does or should affect the recognition of family-parental status under the Charter, about the definition or possible scope of family or parental status, or about the possibility of addressing parental or family status discrimination by recognizing other grounds. Nor did we receive any submissions or evidence on how or whether recognition of family-parental status would affect protection for women above and beyond that available under the enumerated grounds of sex. The record is similarly silent on the nature of the disadvantages that fathers may have experienced or continue to experience because of parenting responsibilities, or on the possible impact of recognizing a new analogous ground on father's relationships with a co-parent. And finally, we received no submissions on whether or how these questions are or should be relevant to the test for recognizing a new analogous ground under Section 15.1 a test which itself has been the subject of renewed scholarly attention. These are some of the issues that merit close examination by this court, as do issues like the growing and urgent need related to elder care and the implications of our evolutionary understanding from a conjugal-centric meaning of family to one more appreciative of the variations of intimate relationships that make up today's households. But these issues were barely addressed in this appeal. While recognizing multiple interactive grounds of discrimination can allow for a fuller appreciation of the discrimination involved in particular cases, the gap in submissions and evidence means that critical questions about the implications of adopting family parental status as an analogous ground were not explored in the record. That is not to say that this status should not eventually be recognized as an analogous ground or that we should shy away from recognizing analogous grounds which raise complexities Rarely do enumerated or analogous grounds come neatly packaged. But before we do so, it seems to me to be wiser to have the benefit of sufficient argument and submissions, so that the recognition, when it comes, pays full tribute to the breadth of what is at stake. And so, to Section 1. Section 1 allows the state to justify a limit on a charter right as demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. To start, the state must identify a pressing and substantial objective for limiting the charter right. The Attorney General bears the burden of showing that classifying full-time RCMP members who enter job sharing as part-time workers and excluding them from accessing full-time pension credit achieves a compelling state objective. As the court noted in Alliance, it is the limitation on equality rights that must be justified, not the legislative scheme as a whole. Quote, where a court finds that a specific legislative provision infringes a charter right, the state's burden is to justify that limitation, not the whole legislative scheme. Thus, the objective relevant to the Section 1 analysis is the objective of the infringing measure, since it is the infringing measure and nothing else which is sought to be justified. End quote. The Attorney General, in my respectful view, has identified no pressing and substantial policy concern Purpose or principle that explains why job sharers should not be granted full time pension credit for their service. On the contrary, this limitation is entirely detached from the purpose of both the job sharing scheme and the buyback provisions, which were intended to ameliorate the position of female RCMP members who take leave to care for their children. As the Honorable Gilles Loisel, then President of the Treasury Board, set in support of amendments to the Public Service superannuation legislation. Quote, I might mention too that this provision, like that for coverage of part-time employees, would particularly benefit women who continue to be the employees with the greatest need for room to balance family and career commitments. Many women, for example, take advantage of extended periods of leave without pay for the purpose of caring for young children or for elders and this provision would enhance their ability to return to work without undue financial hardship, end quote. The job-sharing program had a similar objective, as confirmed in an affidavit filed as part of the Attorney General's record for the application hearing. Quote, The job-sharing policy was instituted to facilitate work-life balance for members of the force who, due to personal or family circumstances, would benefit from being able to work part-time instead of taking extended leaves of absence in the form of leave without pay. Job sharing was thus seen as being mutually beneficial as it enabled members to remain operationally connected to the force while having a work schedule that better accommodated their individual circumstances." Job sharing was clearly intended as a substitute for leave without pay for those members who could not take such leave due to personal or family circumstances. It is unclear, then, what purpose is served by treating the two forms of work reduction differently when extending pension buyback rights. The RCMP's plan provides buyback rights when a full-time member reduces her hours from 40 to 0 to care for her child, but, inexplicably, withholds such rights if the same member, for the same reasons, reduces her hours from 40 to 10, 20, 30, or some other number and this despite the RCMP benefiting from the member's service in the latter scenario. I see no justification for this limitation, let alone a pressing and substantial one. The distinction becomes even more difficult to understand when considering that buyback rights are available to members who have been suspended. In my respectful view, the government has not offered a compelling objective for the limitation on job-sharing participants wishing to buy back full-time pension credit. Since the prima facie breach cannot be justified under Section 1, it is a violation of Section 15 to preclude Miss Fraser and her colleagues from buying back their pension credits. Finally, My Colleagues' Reasons Call for Response. The version of Section 15 advanced in My Colleagues' Reasons is essentially that advanced in the dissenting reasons in Alliance. They argued then, as they do now, that a finding of a breach would have a chilling effect on legislatures, that the impugned legislation was not the source of the differences in compensation between men and women, and the court should not interfere with incremental efforts intended to narrow the gap between a group and the rest of society, and that finding a Section 151 breach would place legislatures under a freestanding positive obligation to act in order to obtain specific societal results such as the total and definitive eradication of gender-based pay inequities. All of these propositions were squarely rejected by the majority in Alliance. Nothing, as far as I can see, has happened since Alliance was decided in 2018 to justify discarding its premises. And no one involved in this case argued that we should, except, inferentially, my colleagues, who tug at the strands of a prior decision they disagree with in search of the occasional phrase or paragraph by which they can unravel the precedent. Their arguments are based on conjecture, not reality, calling to mind one writer's wry observation that setting straw men on fire is not what we meant by illumination. And above all, they continue their insistent attack on the foundational premise of this court's Section 15 jurisprudence, substantive equality, in favor of a formalistic approach that embraces a mechanical and sterile categorization process conducted entirely within the four corners of the impugned legislation. This court has consistently rejected this thin and impoverished vision of Section 15 as have even the scholars cited by my colleagues. It is unfortunate that as the global jurisprudence has increasingly embraced substantive equality, My colleagues continue to endorse an approach which evokes the rejected pre-charter theory whose effect was to deny access to benefits when that access required accommodation based on difference. What my colleagues' definition of the rule of law is must surely include the assumption that decisions of the Supreme Court will be respected not only by the public but by members of the court. And it must surely also include an assurance to those seeking constitutional protections that the ongoing repetition and dissenting opinions of rejected arguments will not require them, with each new case, to stand ready to defend the exact gains that have been won multiple times in the past. For over 30 years, the Section 15 inquiry has involved identifying the presence, persistence, and pervasiveness of disadvantage, based on enumerated or analogous grounds. Its mandate is ambitious, but not utopian to address that disadvantage where it is identified so that in pursuit of equality, inequality can be reduced one case at a time. That is why there is a Section 151 breach in this case. Not because women continue to have disproportionate responsibility for child care and less stable working hours than men, but because the pension plan institutionalizes those traits as a basis on which to unequally distribute pension benefits to job-sharing participants. This is discrimination reinforced by law, which this court has denounced since Andrews. Contrary to the views of my colleagues, there is nothing extraordinary about holding as we do here that such discrimination violates Section 151 of the Charter. Based on our jurisprudence, it would be extraordinary if we did not. The final question relates to remedy. In my view, the appropriate remedy is a declaration that there has been a breach of the Section 15 rights of full-time RCMP members who temporarily reduced their working hours under a job-sharing agreement based on the inability of those members to buy back full pension credit for that service. The methodology for facilitating the buyback pension credit is for the government to develop, but any remedial measures it takes should be in accordance with this court's reasons. They should also have retroactive effect in order to give the claimants in this case and others in their position a meaningful remedy. I would allow the appeal with costs throughout. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you are able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Radomile. Audio engineering by Anthony Radomile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Radomile at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at LegalListening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.